Hello, I'm Billy Lennon, and you're listening to the Cleveland Review of Books podcast. Today, I'm talking with Erica Dirk about her piece, The Adolescent Gaze on Diz Tate's Brutes, which was published in 2023 by Catapult. We discuss novels designed for the big screen, prestige TV, the virgin suicides, first-person plural narration, and the 2017 film, The Florida Project. Erica Dirk is a writer and lawyer currently living in Chicago. Hi, welcome to another episode of the Cleveland Review of Books podcast. I'm here with Erica Dirk to discuss her review of Diz Tate's Brutes. Her piece is called The Adolescent Gaze. Um, Erica, how's it going? It's going well. Thanks for having me, Billy. Appreciate it. Of course, of course. Um, I was telling Erica before, this is the first uh, novel I've discussed with a contributor um, on the podcast. So, yeah, it'll be fun learning on the fly. Um, (laughs) So, yeah, just very basically and broadly, what is Brutes about? Like, what's its premise? Sure, sure. So um, the book starts out with this kind of ominous, mysterious question, where is she? Um, And the she in question is Sammy, who's this local preacher's daughter in this small Florida town. Um, And the speaker or the speakers are um, this group of girls who are... uh, 12, 13 year olds um, living in Florida and who obsessively watch Sammy um, and her, you know, slightly older friends. And they live in this town. And the book kind of focuses on their plural point of view um, as they, you know, give us more and more information about where this missing girl might be. So it's a mystery kind of. Yeah, yeah, it's it's like a lyrical mystery. Um, I think Diz Tate started as a poet, and that kind of shines through in in the book. But um, yeah, so I think it's it's a really place specific book um, where these the town of Florida that Falls Landing in Florida. Yeah, that it kind of is there. a town. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it it has its own feel. For sure, um, kind of as a character in itself, um, kind of have this sun-bleached uh, town, and that's an element that really shines through in the book. Mm-hmm. So, uh, wh- what drew you to the book in the first place? Yeah, so I, I think the the kind of mysterious element of it drew me in, um, kind of creepy premise a teenage girl goes missing and this group of slightly younger teenage girls are figuring out what might have happened to her um and it's kind of it was a as a some of the blurbs talked about girlhood and and teenage years and that development and so topically I found that interesting kind of a coming of age story and maybe less intellectually I I think the I'm a sucker for good design and I thought the cover was cool and so Mm -hmm. I think um you know 
kudos to the to the designer there. Um, but it's billed as the Florida Project meets Virgin Suicides. I had read and really enjoyed Virgin Suicides before. So I think um, that drew me in. Yeah, I still haven't read that crazily. Yeah. Nor nor have I seen the Sofia Coppola movie. Maybe yeah. I should. Maybe I should watch that tonight. It's it's remember. pretty good. I think um I actually I took a class in contemporary literature in, in college and we both read the book and and watched the movie for that class. And so But yeah, yeah, we were talking a little bit about the Florida project before like beginning recording. And you said you I'm, really liked I'm very, it, right? Yeah, yeah. I'll mention that in a second. I just, I'm very much abreast of contemporary publishing. And I don't know, I feel like five years ago, even, like when I would see a new novel coming out, I'd be like, oh, this reminds me of novel X. Right. It, it seems like most novels that come out now, I'm just like, oh, this is, this looks like boyhood. Like, it, it, right. They they feel more like ready to be made into a movie or like prestige TV. Yes. Like I see this book and I'm thinking like kind of yellow jackets. Yeah. I mean, yeah that's a, that's a, a really good comparison actually. Um, yeah. Yeah. I'm into the second season of yellow jackets and there's definitely, there are definitely parallels um, particularly in um, girlhood, not being this, sweet precious thing um yeah girls being real people who do you know crazy gross things sometimes and that is a yeah a I, point of comparison. I just stopped watching that show yeah. that was <laughs> yeah. yeah pretty freaky disturbing. Yeah. pretty disturbing but I, I don't know if that's like how that's like a thing that is inherent to these n- novels or if it's just a change in like emphasis regarding uh you know how books are marketed or if i've just watched more tv like since graduating so that's sort of my frame of reference but um i guess that since this is the first novel we've talked about on the podcast and that's like kind of where my heart is and also just like on a meta level thinking about contemporary publishing i'm just going to apply that to this yeah no for sure i think I think sometimes, for better or worse, the best phrase um, someone thinks they are giving to a novel is, I could, wow, I can totally see this. It was as if it was a movie. Um, And I think that can be really good praise. It means this felt real or, you know, this scene was particularly evocative or vivid in some way. Um, but But I also do wonder about whether authors are writing towards that or whether like you said it's it's more of a a marketing thing Mm -hmm. so kind of back to the book itself and your review one of if not the major focus of your review and you get into similarities to Jeffrey Eugenides virgin suicide via this insight Um, you talk a lot about the choice of um, like Tate using the first person plural, uh, both in this book and more generally, uh, could you expand a bit on some of your thoughts regarding the narrative function of the we? Sure. I think um, kind of one of the 
you know, central points of the review is that uh, using we can establish certain norms of a group that might not translate into society at large to the extent that people try to do that by using the first person plural. Um, and by establishing norms of that in group, it allows for deviation from that in a way that is that makes the reader care or is particularly interesting. So that if one singular character within that group does something that doesn't align with that group's norms, then we care about it. Um, mm -hmm. So if in Brutes, uh, Jody or Leela does something that is different from what all the other group members are doing, um, that might not be interesting to us otherwise if we don't already know that what she's doing is taboo or not sanctioned by the group. Um, because we, but by using the the we, we have certain expectations of what the group does and when someone is violating those norms. I think you mentioned like specifically uh, like instances of like self-inflicted violence. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, I think pain is something that can only be experienced individually um, but the act of, you know, passing a hand over a flame can be done within a group. And, and there are certainly instances of that throughout the book of, of um, people carving, you know, names into their thighs or mm -hmm. these kind of brutal acts of, of self-inflicted violence. Um, but they're known to all the group and they are you know, there, there's these singular acts, but each person does it in a different way. Um, mm -hmm. It's interesting. And so this group of girls and a guy who becomes a girl, mm -hmm. I don't know if that's like literal or like uh, just like he's one of the girls. Yeah. Um, yeah. But uh, uh, how do they get the name Brutes and why? Yeah. So, I mean they engage in all these you know kind of brutal acts um you know they put a nest of i forget whether it was wasps or hornets or bees or something you know so that the church people would run away from them um but their mothers are the ones that end up calling them brutes um and the that, and i think that's an interesting dynamic in itself because their mothers are um their caretakers and are also the subjects of the girls scorn a lot of times the the kind of phrases they use to describe them are are you know not maybe stopping short of pejorative but just you can tell that there's not much uh mutually flowing respect in, in those relationships yeah, I think you mentioned they're they're these paradigmatic model type people that they look up to, and then yeah. they're criticizing their moms for having like dead skin and like fucked up cuticles or whatever. Right, right. It's like yeah. how is a mother supposed to compete with a you know fourteen year old girl that these twelve and thirteen year old girls ideal you know idealize and idolize and and all of that. Okay. Another thing that you focused on was, you know, speaking about 
looking at the parents or these idealized images, what struck you about like the power dynamics of being seen or unseen in the book? Yeah, I th- I think visibility has its has its benefits and and its corresponding pitfalls, um, which is kind of emblematic of the experience of being a teenage girl where you want so desperately to be seen and noticed and um, are maybe not worldly enough to understand the dangers that that can go along with that. And that rings true throughout the book where, um, you know, it kind of brings to mind like a predator prey dynamic. You know, there's, there's this power of watching and not being watched yourself um, that I think Tate explores throughout the book. Sometimes you also don't know who else is, is watching you without, without you spotting them. So I think particularly as applied to teenage girlhood um, as it is in Brutes, it can as a reader lead to this really unsettling experience where you know, Brutes is a is a novel for adults who have progressed through their their teenage years uh, and are examining these girls, pers- you know, their viewpoint from an older perspective. And I think that leads to the ominous undertones throughout the book, where you kind of know something something bad is about to happen, and you're not quite sure what. Um, mm-hmm. Because there all there are all these sources of danger. There's these you know sleazy talent scouts. There is this creature that's apparently lurking in the lake. You know you have these kind of you know crazy elements that aren't just pinned to reality, but you have this surreal background of the book where you're just not. It's it's a bit disorienting where you're not quite sure where the danger is. Yeah, you mentioned the talent scouts. Like, mm-hmm. who are they? What are they looking? Yeah. Yeah. What What's going on with those guys? The talent scouts are at the mall, and they are just trying to discover the next big star, <laughs> um, which is about as realistic as as it sounds. Um, but there is a certain scene where um, the girls are all watching the slightly older girl Mia. Um, and and some other teenagers, you know, audition for talent scouts in the in the mall, and it's this really uncomfortable scene where it doesn't go particularly well, but they still follow Mia and and continue to idolize her. You know, without without spoiling too much of the book, they're you know put in a situation where they're inside the home of one of these sleazy talent scouts and that there's a real urgency as a reader I think where you're saying get out of there this this is a this is not a safe place for these teenagers to be and so yeah there's this undercurrent I think of of dread throughout throughout the book where you're just worried about what's going to happen next yeah and and maybe they don't understand they don't think about it in these terms but it seems like it's kind of a desperate situation for like being seen by these talent scouts seems like a, uh, one of the only ways to achieve like upward class mobility or something like later on. I I don't know. Yeah. 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 There's this, there's 
you know, they're in this small town. They, they want to get out. They want to be something outside of the group. Um, but the group is also their source of protection. Mm-hmm. And so I think, you know, they dream of becoming stars and, and packing their bags and leaving it all behind. It's this fantasy that we kind of, as, as readers, see, see through a bit more. Cool. And then is there anything else you couldn't really get into in the review that you wish you could have? Or... Yeah, yeah. I think I think I mentioned this earlier, but I was really taken by how descriptive the the scenery, the the imagery was in the book. Um, it really set the stage for all of the the action to take place. Um, like I said, I can't imagine it. it it's a quintessentially Floridian book um and i actually was in orlando while i while i started drafting the review and i think reading back through the book it was just um being there it really made me feel like tate hit it perfectly where um the kind of the sun bleached atmosphere it just it i think she did a really nice job with the descriptive elements as well Cool. Well, yeah, I think that's good. Um, if you want to stay on for two seconds to discuss Zelda, cool. Yes, let's do it. Um, <laughs> cool. Well, thanks for your time, Erica. Yeah, thanks cut for the recording me. now. Perfect. All right. Thank you for listening to the Cleveland Review of Books podcast. Producer A Live of Cleveland's own Moomin Collective graciously provided the music we used for the intro, as well as the one you are listening to now. We publish reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts online at clereviewofbooks.com about three to four times per week. We recommend signing up for our bi-weekly newsletter, a link to which can be found in the show notes as we all adjust to a shifting social media environment. You can also purchase print issues and merch, including hats, totes, and shirts in our online store. I'd also like to shout out all of our amazing editors, including Zach Peckham, Bree DeManda, Robert Giddings, Alana Pakros, Angelo Maniage, Morgan Ford, Michael Credico, Helen Rauner, Jacob Brueggemann, Philip Harris, Ali Black, Isabel Blakeway Phillips, Eli Scope, and R.A. Washington. See you next time.